We now return to our discussion with investigative journalist Mike Whitney on bringing light into darkness in our discussion of trying to understand the Ukrainian crisis from the national security perspective of all nations involved. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's a really important point because the narrative, I, I just can't explain how important the failure of our news agencies to present both sides of the coin when it comes to these types of conflicts. And since February, and this is from Moon of Alabama points this out in, in a very well-written piece that was just a day or two ago called Ukraine Crisis Recedes, but a false narrative of it leads to bad conclusions. And he makes the point that since February, the Ukraine built up a force to retake the Donbass uh, region in east, uh, eastern Ukraine by military force. And after several weeks, they talk about all of these forces that were being moved up to. This is what Russia was responding to. And it's interesting. We are, we are led to believe that like Russia is fighting the Ukraine. They, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that have been captured by the Ukrainian army. And they're all Donbass or other uh, Eastern Ukrainians. They're, they're not. They're not Russian soldiers. Now there is logistical support and those types of things that obviously Russia is going to help out with because that's you know in their interest as well. But but this is a profoundly popular resistance by the people in the Donbass and Lugansk area of the Ukraine that when polled prior to the coup, in fact, prior to the previous election that put Yanukovych into power, over 80% of the votes were cast for Yanukovych. And so when you have this coup that was engineered by Victoria Newland and uh, the taped recordings of her telephone calls gives you the kind of evidence that you would never suspect that you would have to, to validate that claim, that the coup that was engineered by Victoria Newland, what you end up having is 80% of the people have the, the president cooed out that they voted for. And then there's this huge repression wave by these neo-Nazi brigades representing the coup government that we put into power. And this is all reconfigured in the American media to be Russian aggression. It was all instigated. The whole problem began not with Russia tinkering with the government of the Ukraine, but, but the West led by the United States. No, absolutely. It was a coup, and it's pretty well documented by any number of sources. But, you know, just recently what's happened, just a quick synopsis of the last month, is the U.S. has offered its unwavering support for Ukraine in recapturing the Donbass. So if there was a war, the United States has said that they would support it. The critics and the pundits in this country say that it doesn't matter what they say publicly. That's never going to happen. The United States is not going to fight Russia for a scrap of ground in Ukraine. It's On their border, right. Yeah. But, but since then, of course, you know, Biden referred to Putin in an interview with NBC, I believe it was, as a killer. So uh, President Zelensky, the, you know, our puppet in Kiev, said that uh, their goal of Ukraine is to recapture uh, Crimea, which is in Russian control right now, through force. Just two days ago, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee ponied up another $300 million for more weaponry for the Ukrainian army. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you have to go back to the election itself in 2016, where it was supposedly uh, Russian meddling that helped win it for Trump. So basically, you have all this pent-up energy and people believing that once the Democrats are back in office, oh boy, you better watch out Putin. 
And instead, you know, threatening to deploy two warships to the Black Sea, they backed down on that. And now, apparently, you know, the drills have ended. And uh, the whole thing is, you know, I'm very thankful for this, is fizzling out. And, you know, it's a bit of a black eye for the United States to put its integrity on the line or its, its name on the line saying that we're going to get involved in this fracas. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing just fizzles out. I hope that's a fact, but I'm telling you as far as perception on the Internet right now for the people who they just think that this thing, like you were just talking about Moon of Alabama, uh, that it was at fever pitch about a week ago. And, you know, there's still regular flare-ups on the perimeter of the Donbass and uh, Ukraine proper. Uh, there's at least five of these incidents every day, five or six of them. It hasn't escalated, and there's no troop movements, and it doesn't look like there's going to be an invasion at least anytime soon. So... Let's hope it's just they've decided on another course. But, you know, with those war hawks in the State Department and in the uh, Pentagon, you can expect these guys really have an animus towards Putin. He has shown up some of our smartest people in the Pentagon and the, and the State Department, and they would love to be the guy who was able to put one over on Putin, but it just hasn't happened. Yeah, and I think that the other offensive that the West is winning because it controls all this media it is the hearts and minds of the U.S. public. The moon of Alabama, you know, they say, but for the people who have fallen for this false narrative, namely that Russia is the aggressor, they have not been told about the buildup that Zelensky promoted with the U.S. backing that provoked Moscow's reaction. So Moscow retreated from the border, but left all of their armaments and those types of things. So if this thing kindles back up, they'll be able to respond more quickly. Like you said, Biden last week ordered the two warships back that were supposed to go into the Black Sea to support Ukraine. And they're making it seem like this was this great deterrence. And that's why Russia backed off from the border. But what Moon of Alabama indicates is that was not a warning, a warning to Moscow when, they, when, when Biden pulled them back out, uh, because it did not deter Russia from doing anything. They were going to protect their national security interests regardless, but it did. And Zelensky's illusions of U.S. support is what he writes, which I think is important. All the pundits were waiting for Wednesday of this week when mm -hmm. Putin gave his State of the State, which is essentially the State of the Union speech. Mm -hmm. And people were just on tender hooks waiting for to hear what he was going to say. And as it turns out, about nine-tenths of the speech was domestic policy about, you know, uh, raising standards of living and, uh, you know, jobs and COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And he just had two small paragraphs which were really pointed about the situation between the United States and particularly, and he just basically said, you know, we're trying, we want to be friends with everyone, but I hope people don't try our patience and cross Russia's red lines, because if they do, we're going to come, come down on them like a ton of bricks. And he said it in very explicit language, and then moved on right away to kind of more placating tone, just saying, well, but that doesn't have to happen. You know, we can all get along and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just, it's just very clear that when he put those 85,000 troops and uh, armored you know, vehicles and the tanks and everything else on the border, that it's, it's put up or shut up time. Because really, you know, you decide to do what you're going to do, he's going to come down on you pretty heavy, and there's not going to be any gray area about what's going to happen. So the United States basically had its opportunity to start a war, if that's what it wanted, and it backed down. So apparently the Biden administration isn't quite ready for that yet, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. 
Right. Well, let me ask you this, because I think just the, the context of this discussion, it's important to include the, you know, the bellicose actions that are not reported by the West. And then what happens is that you see a response by Russia, but it's in the absence of what they're responding to. So it appears to be Russian aggression. But in as many months, Biden has held the presidency. This is basically an April article uh, indicating he's shipped three consignments of arms to Ukraine. And that is in addition to the $2 billion of security assistance the U.S. has extended to Ukraine since 2014 coup. Also, the United States has deployed nuclear-capable B-1 bombers to Norway for the first time in NATO's history. And this year's NATO war exercises included the U.S.-led Rapid Trident and Seabreeze, the British-Ukrainian Cossack Mace and Warrior Watcher, and the Romanian-Ukrainian Riverine and Polish-Ukrainian Three Swords and, and Silver Saver. So this is what Russia is facing and when they respond in any form or fashion, you know, God forbid that they even transfer troops within their own boundaries of their own country without it being presented as some type of Russian aggression. But in a way, you know, the United States isn't doing anything it hasn't done for a long, long time. And the, the only thing is that if we had intelligent people who were you know, determining the policy, they would take the broader picture at this point and look at China with its Belt and Road scheme and with mm-hmm. the Central Asia coming under Russia and China's power to to basically expand this free trade area that's going to be irresistible to the European countries because this is where the new source of demand is going to come. This is where the you know hardware and the raw material is going to come from. This is where the potential sales of their merchandise is going to come from. And, and we keep falling further and further behind. We don't even have an infrastructure policy. We don't have a plan for uniting the world. What we have is a bunch of, you know, dilettantes who think that they can rule through the force of power, and that's not really succeeding. Even this thing about Afghanistan, let's just get off track for one second and talk about Afghanistan. Everyone's being told through the media that Afghanistan is a great success and that we're going to get out, get out of there on September 11th. It isn't going to happen. Read between the lines. Read... The, the other the stuff that other people are saying about this. First of all, there are 18,000 contractors in Afghanistan. Many of them are American. Many of them are armed. They're basically mercenaries. They're staying. NATO is going to have a contingent there. They're staying. We're not going to release the Taliban's prisoners. So the Taliban has already said they've stopped any kind of communication with us because they're saying that, that unless we get the prisoners, unless all armed troops leave the country, there's not going to be any peace. Okay? So... All this stuff about the United States leaving and that the thing ends, it's not going to end. In fact, there was a a general who said two days ago that we're actually going to increase our presence there because we're falling behind, and that leaves us with no leverage to deal with the Taliban. So I'm not criticizing the end result, because the end result is going to be the United States leaving like they left in Vietnam with its tail between its legs, because it's not working. I mean, who can't see after 20 years, that it's not working and that it's not going to succeed. I'll tell you who can't see it, but people are conducting and, and determining the policy. That's what we're stuck with, and I losers. Think, I think that's what Richard Black, is, he laments in his uh, speech the other day, was all of these different countries that have never attacked us, yet we are... And, and of course, I guess the exception would be, you know, the 9-11 and the terrorists that came from uh, Afghanistan or whatever, but all these other nations and such 
So I think that's the thing with, with Afghanistan was my understanding was that the Taliban, they were demanding or requesting the release of their prisoners before they would consider the U.S. request to extend the withdrawal date from May 1st to a few mm-hmm. months or whatever. It wasn't like, I think... So there's no resolution? Uh, yeah, and I think on May 1st, there's going to be the resumption of violence against American and NATO troops. And as soon as an American dies, you know, just like you say, there's no way we're, it looks like that we're going to successfully leave from there. No, and in the meantime, mm-hmm. Nord, Stream, which, Nord Stream, which is carrying tons of uh, Russian gas to... Germany and to the rest of Europe, and South Stream, which is carrying it through the southern states and Bulgaria and uh, Italy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the arteries from Russia and the tie-in, the integration, the economic integration of Central Asia and the Far East with Europe is going ahead nonstop. And the United States is on the outside looking in with this failed military policy that is supposed to control the world to anyone with half a brain can say, you know what, let's take the long view because this is not working. Mm-hmm. We need something where we can achieve a success. I remember at the very beginning of Afghanistan, there was some, you know, wary military general, I can't remember his name right now, who had served in Vietnam, and he said, tell me how this ends. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to ask ourselves. How does it end? Right. It was never going to succeed, and we're 20 years into it, and it's still not going to succeed. Yeah, on this show, we talk a lot about foreign policy. We talk a lot about all these aggressions that go on along the world, but almost all of them are by the U.S. military, whether it's in Iraq or, or in you know, Yemen and it's supporting, you know, Saudi Arabia there or in Libya, on and on and on. And I think people misinterpret that as, as that somehow by questioning our accusations about Russia, somehow I am endorsing and favor towards Russia. I, I am in favor of looking at things geopolitically. And as Dr. King said, and if you do not look at the enemy's point of view, there'll never be peace in this world and such. And so I think it's really important that people really consider this national security boundary that we were talking about and these violations and real threat that these uh, military exercises and all this other stuff that NATO annually does, as you said, do to provoke Russia to react. And when they react, then they're accused of being aggressive. So that geopolitical concern is very striking for a country, Russia, that has not attacked anyone, uh, that any country since World War II that I'm aware of, yet uh, our uh, record is quite, the, uh, is quite the opposite, yet somehow Russia is the aggressor. You know, I'm convinced that it, uh, uh, the United States' presence in East Syria doesn't achieve anything geopolitically. That's what's so nonsensical about it. You know, I mean, they're not going to be able to get the pipelines from, you know, access to Dubai or whatever it was, uh, Qatar, to Europe, as they expected. So it doesn't really serve. What, what it, the purpose is to hopefully, as far as they're concerned, put Russia in a situation where they're in a long low-intensity, protracted war that sucks a lot of their resources, which they're determined not to do and which hasn't happened, and basically just to be at loggerheads in different places in the world with Russia. But I don't think that serves the interests of the American people. I don't even, I I don't see any grand scheme in in what that achieves, you know. Mm -hmm. We're just 
basically checkmated in a number of places around the world and doing what we always do because we don't know how to get out of it without stepping down and looking foolish. Well, we, well, we have all our alliances, right, Mike, and NATO and all these other countries. But we, I think that the policy keeps Russia from developing the alliances like, the, you know, the Syrian and the Iranian. And uh, these are allies of each other, Iran and, and Syria. You know, they have every right to have security and cooperation agreements, which they haven't. So I think by just stirring up conflict everywhere, somehow it enables the status quo to maintain itself in which this, you know, this huge wealth inequality that we're having in our own country is mimicked throughout the world. Well, I think if we had this this conversation 10 years ago, uh-huh. you and I would not really be able to uh, appreciate the degree of decline that we've seen in the United States from its unipolar moment right. when we were the dominant power to where we are today, basically checkmated in different places around the world, still thinking, still clinging to this idea that the U.S., that the world is looking for leadership when they're really looking for is cooperation, you know, and, uh, you know, parity, some sort of, you know, parity around the world, so uh, policy doesn't have to dicta- be dictated by Washington. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's disturbing because it just doesn't feel like, it just doesn't feel like the conversations are too insulated in Washington and they're not, they, they've excluded all the conflicting or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, the contrarian points of view mm-hmm. that might be able to get us out of this trap right in, we're in right now. Because obviously the Biden administration, they came in with all kinds of great ideas about how they were going to get into the scrum with Russia, and they've already backed down. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask me, it's already a humiliation. Mm-hmm. So let's work out something where we can have a meeting of the minds, have a real summit. I mean, they prevented Trump from having any kind of summit for four years. Okay, you won that political battle. What are you going to do? Right. And the answer is, they don't know. Very good. Well, we've been visiting with, with Mike Whitney, the investigative reporter that actually has done great work. I've followed your work for a long time, Mike, and I I think you bring to light what you were suggesting we lack in our discourse of information, namely information that's really important to know in order to to kind of decode what's going on and stuff. I wanted to ask you, if people are interested to access your writings, what would be the best way for them to uh, access uh, some of your articles? I usually post at the UNS Review, but uh, I've been writing a lot of stuff about the COVID, COVID issue lately. Yeah, I saw you. So you also did a piece. You interviewed Israel Shamir. Yeah, Israel Shamir. Yes, yeah. On, uh, yeah, because he is a citizen of Russia. So uh, he, I just thought his insights into what's going on in Ukraine would be helpful. I do disagree with him. He thinks that, you know, if, if Russia does invade, they should go right straight to the capital and take over the country and just leave it at that. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, I just don't see that happening because I think the politics would be too ugly for uh, Russia, and then NATO would have a reason to, you know, accuse Putin of being an external threat. So Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think he could that's be right. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's hard to say. It is hard to say, but I think what is interesting is our policy is always about trying to provoke an act that then we can use in order to justify a much more powerful skirmish or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking, you know, just the history of following U.S.-Cuban relations, how we have provoked Cuba in every fashion. And if they would have ever responded in a way that may have 
seemingly been appropriate, like self-defense and, you know, that type of thing, it, it, it still would have fallen right into the hands of, of creating a false rationalization to just, you know, go in there and take the whole country over so they don't do that. And, no, I, exactly, and, I, and, yeah. and I think I think Putin, for everything people want to say about him, he he knows that if he gives any type of, not even a rationale, but the resemblance of a rationale that can be used and be distorted in a way to rally the uh uh, the people behind a, a strike back against uh, a, a, against Russia. And when you control all the media and all the information, it, that's what's so frustrating is that you also start shaping people's tendencies. With that 90% dominance of the media ownership comes the controlling of the dominant narrative that shapes the American public's perception of the world around them in a way that can be fatally flawed and silently endorses a foreign policy that's outrageously aggressive and has rationalized its aggression based on what we later find out to be a pattern of false or unproven accusations. But despite all of that, I agree with you. I think Putin would be very reluctant. Uh, He will protect his country. It was interesting. You remember, just just to close out the show, in Georgia in 2008, they falsely claimed that Russia had unprovokingly gone into from Ossetia into Georgia, when in fact it was Georgia that attacked and launched nighttime raids and started that whole thing into Ossetia during the Olympics of that time. But Russia went deeply into Georgia and then withdrew. But they were accused of a disproportional response. And most people at that time that were rational would say, well, wait a minute, if you come into my house to rob my house, you know, I'm going to kick your ass. That's a perfect example because there were a lot of hawks on the Russian side in the Kremlin who were saying, we just got to go to the Capitol and get rid of this guy and end it forever. But Putin, being the, you know, risk-adverse guy he is, restrained himself. And as a result, he came up with a big victory. So, and people that uh, yeah, people that doubt that can check out the EU report that clearly showed that it was the Georgian government under Sescovelli that that uh, provoked the whole deal to start with. Yet, it was a Russia aggression presentation to the Western public that most people still believe falsely believe was the case. So, exactly. Uh, anyhow. Friend, thank you so much, Mike, for your work and for your time thank tonight. Thank you for having me, Pedro. Yeah, it was a very, a very interesting discussion, and you, thank you for bringing light into the darkness around these areas. And uh, as always, we will stay in touch and look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks. All right, brother. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet. If you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
associate. 